You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Barbara Engelhart, professor of computer science at Princeton University. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on Theory and Practice. So Alex, for this episode, I got to interview Barbara Engerhart, professor of computer science at Princeton University. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited to hear about the conversation. Yeah. So let's take a listen. The first question we asked Barbara was how she got to where she is now. My, my story is a bit roundabout, I guess I should say. So I've always really enjoyed doing math, although I found that when I went to college after sort of having so much fun in high school math and, and being very successful in that space. You know, in college, I was taking an advanced math series at, at Stanford, and it was just way too theoretical for me. And, you know, I loved it, and I did it, and I enjoyed every part of it. But at the end of the day, I felt like um, because I was more focused on sort of asking questions and, and thinking sure. about different problems, I was sort of not feeling as uh, welcome in there as I, I think I, I might have been otherwise. What math yeah. class was it? What stage of your kind of mathematical development? This was all the first year college math. So I was I was frustrated by that. I ended up taking a couple of computer science classes and falling in love with them and then doing the symbolic systems uh, yep. degree at, at, at Stanford, which was great uh, and really focused a lot on sort of logical reasoning uh, and ended up being fairly theoretical. But obviously with a sort of background of artificial intelligence, so I graduated in 98, which was like, of course, the year that, you know, Google was founded and Marissa Mayer's going off to do these things. And, you know, it was kind of an exciting time to be around there and specifically be like sort of in the AI world at Stanford. There was a lot of hope and promise, but uh, no one had any idea where it was going to go. As a total aside, I watched The Matrix the other day with my kids. Oh. And, you know, you see Neo in 1999 going to his software job with a suit and tie. And, I mean, to imagine that in, in like, Google now would be, like, <laughs> mind-blowing, right? Okay, so anyway, so that's the that's the first part of it. Then I actually went and worked for the government at Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a couple of years and was um, doing automated spacecraft planning and scheduling. Yep. Uh, worked on a few missions there, uh, which was really exciting because, again, it's like you get to think about both the planning and scheduling itself, but then actually thinking about what it takes to make this thing fly and actually working on missions where you had to do the planning and scheduling and watch your software be successful or not. And so it was it was fun. But, you know, at, at some point sort of hit a wall there because I didn't have a Ph.D. and wanted to do more research. So uh, applied for PhDs. This is a long story. <laughs> no, PhDs. No. Went to Berkeley, worked with Mike Jordan, which was just the most phenomenal experience in my whole life. Best six years ever. And uh, got to hang out with some of my still best friends and colleagues like Dave sure. Bly. Um, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. I learned so much there. And, you know, at, at that point, Mike was very uh, practically oriented. He really told us yeah. all that we needed to think about uh, applications that we needed to work on to motivate these ideas in machine learning. So I ended up, you know, basically shopping around with like four or five different groups that were very sort of biologically focused and ended up working with Stephen Brenner. And it was really exciting to sort of get knee deep in what are the real problems going on. So I was thinking about automated protein function prediction at that point with very sparse labels. Um, and it started sort of my uh, my love affair with thinking about these these sort of uh, real world data sets where we really don't have very many labels in, in biology or very sparse sampling. And this has continued, obviously, until now. After that, I 
<laughs> went and worked for 23andMe for a year, which was a oh. really exciting experience, but also at the very, very, very beginning. So sure. got to watch all the data roll off the machines and figure out what to do with it at that point. Then uh, went to do a postdoc with Matthew Stevens for three years. And that was where I got fairly more deep than I'd been at Berkeley into sort of very population genetics, uh, interesting questions, working with the Przorsky, Pritchard, Stevens groups, uh, Yoav Gilad was around a lot, uh, Anna mm-hmm. DiRienzo, like all of these wonderful population geneticists. Uh, it was just a really magical time. Also another set of colleagues that uh, I still think about and work with a lot. And then from there, I went to Duke, yep. <laughs> the story keeps going, uh, and biostats and statistics, where I uh, felt like I got to explore the extra Bayesian version of myself, which was very exciting, and start collaborating with doctors on on interesting questions. And then I went to Princeton, where it's totally the opposite. <laughs> I'm pretty much one of the one of the handful of statisticians there, and uh, there's no statistics department, and there's actually very few human geneticists, so it uh, feels like a different world. And so when you think about your current research interests, you've done, you know, brilliant work in both more kind of theoretical aspects of machine learning as well as kind of more applied things and especially things in the world of biology. How do you divide your time now and how do you see it evolving over the next few years? Yeah, that's a great question. So on a day-to-day basis, I really think about designing the proper methods for specific questions in biology. So I feel like All of my uh, investment in the biological applications is to learn what questions to ask and what data are available and what experiments we could actually do versus which experiments are not feasible, right? That's where I I spend my time biologically. Um, And I take that information and I translate it to machine learning where I feel like we can design these very specific methods for specific problems, specific techniques that other people can't really do because they think more abstractly about these problems as opposed to sort of the concrete, you know, what what is coming off the the, the sequencing machine kind of questions. So, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I think a lot about actually designing these statistical models. A huge part of my time is actually spent on the let's not say theoretical, but on inference, right? I mean, it's really difficult to do proper inference that's fast enough for the kind of data that we have, um, for the models that we have, which have a lot of statistical structure, right? Hierarchical structure, but then also have robust estimates. So, you know, variational inference is very hard to get working appropriately the first time and to have, you know, in a robust way. So so I spent a lot of my time thinking about inference, actually. Fair enough. Yeah. And so is it fair to say that in almost all of your work, you kind of take a nail-first approach yeah. rather than a hammer-first? Absolutely. Nail-first approach. And I think even more than that, a nail-first approach and also... Then we try the easiest things. First, we'll try, you know, factor analysis or linear regression or non-negative matrix factorization or any any of the code that we have, you know, sitting in our in our (laughs) code bank. We will just throw at it. And if none of those things work, that's when we start thinking about what we need to do better. And towards those ends, people often talk about how physics actually has always motivated lots of new branches of mathematics. Right. And I think a lot of people see a real similar parallel between biology and computation. Are we currently at a state where biology is actually creating new fields of computation and mathematics, machine learning? And if not, how far away is it? That's a really hard question. I don't know. Okay, so previously, let's think about like R.A. Fisher, where, you know, here is a guy who thinks about genetics. In fact, a lot of the older statistical geneticists, a lot of statistics came off of problems in genetics, right? Whether it's, um, you know, doing selection for for breeding, um, any of these problems, regression to the mean, all of these problems came out of (laughs) questions in, in biology. But it seemed like it was motivated. A lot of the statistics, these methods were motivated by the biology, but 
it's not clear to me that biology actually influenced the sort of inference uh, yeah. methods. And I don't know if you're getting at sort of like neural networks and things like that, but I'm fairly skeptical about a lot of that. I think our brains are incredibly, well, I'm, I'm very naive about this, so I'm not an expert at all in this, but I think our brains are incredibly parallel to begin with, and I'm not entirely sure that mimicking what we see going on uh, in terms sure. of biological inference uh, is something that we necessarily need to mimic in computers. Uh, but maybe you're yeah. asking a different question. Yeah, no, I actually wasn't so much asking about the, is the brain a, 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 a neural net? <laughs> uh, I was actually more like to give, you know, an example that yeah. I really loved when I was in mathematics was I loved harmonic analysis. Mm -hmm. And at some point I took, you know, some quantum classes. Yes. And you start to realize that going from position to momentum is a Fourier transform. Yes, that's right. And it was this moment of like just rapture yes. at the beauty of, of the parallels between these two fields. And, and somehow Fourier analysis was just so perfect for this. You know, I'm not sure, and perhaps this is just, you know, I stopped too early, that I've ever seen things in biology and machine learning mm -hmm. where there was quite sort of the same feeling of these two are chocolate and peanut butter mm -hmm. in the same way and so perfect for each other. But again, you're thinking about it much harder than me, so I'm curious if you have examples like it. Yeah, again, it's a great question, and I'm struggling to think of an example. I'll, I'll sort of pivot the question a little bit, which is one of the things I'm really excited about right now is thinking about, and, and you know, uh, you know, here we are sitting at the Broad. I feel like, you know, Aviva Gav is doing a really wonderful job of sort of pushing these ideas, too, as is Alex, actually. Alex Wilchko. Yeah, <laughs> yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> but really thinking about ideas about um, sort of the synergy between technologies and biology. So, you know, how we design an experiment and how those specifically yeah. designed experiments work with inference. So the sort of key, to key word there is design for inference. And the question is, again, can you design these specific techniques um, for, for assays in, in biology? biology that will allow you to do really clever ideas and inference where it is kind yeah. of a lock and key situation, right? Where here's this beautiful method, let's say, and maybe we can design an experiment to take advantage of the statistical power or the, the methodological sure. power we have and really do some crazy things with the biology. And so I feel like a lot of those ideas are starting to be kicked off and a lot of really interesting, you know, sort of combinatorical questions where we can't really yeah. assay everything, but we're sort of going to do some interesting, you know, sketching on it, or we're going to sure. do some uh, interesting proximate uh, yeah. inference. All of these things are, are starting to be played out in a number of different realms. And I'm particularly interested in the experimental design part of it. Yeah. So maybe that is actually a good example of compressed sensing yes. and sort of experimental design. Mm -hmm. But let me ask you, and again, maybe this is too philosophical. Yeah. Compressed sensing really relies on sparseness. Does biology have that sparseness property? You know, especially you think about some of the work by your old mentor on human yes. genetics, yes. saying that actually many, many, many variants contribute to any given trait. Yep. And so maybe it isn't so sparse after all. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? I realize this is a big, grand philosophical question. but that, No, it's good. So, so pushing back on the omnigenic model, I, I agree that this is a super interesting idea. And I think... We all sort of feel like we knew it for a long time, but, but you know, he had to say it, which I think is really beautiful. And actually, the experimental proof of it, I think, is really nice as well, using a lot of the methods developed here at the Broad again. But I think, I think the model is slightly more complex than that, where, again, there is a, a certain amount of sparseness. If we want to talk about causality, uh, it's true that changing one thing is going to change a lot of other things, um, <laughs> uh, most other thing, let's say. But, when you know, when we think about sort of the, the practical utility, if we want to actually translate that to patient care or, uh, you know, targeting diseases, we need to think about, we need to think about the biggest peaks. Sure. Um, so you're right that there is a denseness about uh, the genetic regulation of complex traits. 
that I think we're all starting to appreciate much more. But uh, I think the statistical methods haven't yet caught up. And I feel like, again, there's a lot of people starting to think about this, where it's you know Brad Efron and, and Matthew Stevens and other people really focusing on uh, saying, uh, we shouldn't ask whether the effect of something is zero because it's never yeah. going to be zero and we're never going to get an infinite number of samples to be able to test that it is not zero. Yep. So let's ask another question. And I think those other questions are starting to be interesting. For example, do we see uh, differences in sign, yep. um, the, the effect and direction, which I think is is going to be a more interesting question moving forward. So let's just assume everything is non-zero and, and then ask other questions, right? Relative Relative effect size might be something that's more interesting too conditional effect size, uh, interactions, all of these are sort of questions that we can still ask, despite the fact that there may not be true sparseness. Understood. Yeah. So again, kind of going back to kind of what are the right questions to be asking, you know, if you think about where statistical genetics as a field will be in, let's say, five years, yeah. what are the mountains that you think are most important that we climb? And what are the data types we should be generating now in order to be able to be well positioned to answer those important questions? Specifically human genetics. Well, any field of biology that you're most excited about, I, I kind of was choosing it, thinking yeah, that. Yeah. But if there's something else beyond human genetics that's really kind of thinking you're thinking about a lot, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So I'm going to answer the question in sort of a machine learning way. I think a lot of the most interesting stories right now are, first of all, on patient impact or maybe sure. drug design or something where we actually get to think about influencing the the trajectory of a disease in, a, in, a, in patients, for example. So that's where I'm excited to think about impact. And I think in order to do that, we really do need to think about mechanisms very, very distinctly. In order to think about mechanisms, we need to start thinking about how to think about machine learning methods as discovery methods, where as before they were for prediction, they were for, you know, sort of visualization, dimension reduction, but now we need to go into discovery, right? Sure. Um, and I think it's kind of a different field than we've been talking about in machine learning. I think it's harder and in particular, you know, I, I did some work last year with uh, GTEx, um, the GTEx consortium, and published this uh, 2017 paper with Alexis Battle on transEQTLs. And, you know, we found we have a few discoveries there. And in particular, I think there's a there's a thyroid discovery that is really exciting, where we essentially have these two different genes in this one region in thyroid that appear to have both very broad distal effects on, on gene regulation, but it's not clear how to separate the two. It's not clear how they work together. One of them is not a transcription factor. Uh, that same one is also not only transcribed in, in a thyroid, but um, in many other cell types, whereas the other one is a transcription factor that's only in thyroid. So I think there's really interesting mechanistic stories in there that we need to follow up on. But I guess the point is, for that story, you know, these, these machine learning approaches discovered it. And the question is, for the one for the one huge signal that we saw that happened to be in thyroid, there's probably thousands of other signals that we're not seeing because we're not yet well-powered enough. So going back to your previous question. But I think now the question is, how do we, how do we build the right models for discovery? Um, I think when we do these things, when, when we actually come up with discoveries from these exploratory data analysis type questions, we're only getting, you know, 0.1% of the possible things we could. So thinking about how to build those models so you're specifically enriching for discovery, which I think involves actually a lot of sort of agnosticism about the biological data. So if you throw in, you know, all of the promoter regions that you yep. know are active and things like this, all this ataxic data, all the chip-seq data, uh, I think you're all of a sudden probably getting rid of a lot of the interesting discoveries sure. because you're you're baking in so much of what we already know. Um, and so the question is whether you can't do this, sort of be more agnostic about the patterns that you're going to find and um, essentially see how you can sort of sift through 
the the patterns where the discoveries end up rising to the top in a way that we that we don't do now in these models. Being very vague, but I, I think I think designing models for discovery is is another direction. I think machine learning needs to evolve for for biological analysis. To kind of put it in simpler terms, is yeah. it fair to say a lot of the machine learning that we've done, especially in the world of consumer tech, has been straight up prediction. Yes. And now we need to for biology, we need to focus on causation a bit more. Causation is a part of this story, but I don't think it's all of the story. But yes, absolutely. Okay. In genetics, we have this beautiful thing where often the genotype has to be causal of everything else. So it's always a good place to start. And if we have a bunch of different epigenetic markers that we're interested in thinking about causality and mechanism in them, we can always use these sort of weak instruments, right? These, these genotypes that we know are going to be causal of everything to start with. So I feel like the causality story is actually, first of all, really nice, but also a little bit vague in the sense that we also have problems with linkage disequilibrium, where you see mutations that are really correlated with each other. So, you know, you sort of have blocks, loci in the genome that are that, that have these effects. You can't actually nail down often the exact mutation, which is still unsatisfying in a lot of ways, I think, <laughs> if you want to actually yeah. figure out mechanism. So... Long story short, I think causality is, is absolutely part of it and part of my research agenda. But I think there's other th- other ways to think about discovering the context of, of um, biomedical data that, that we need to sort of think through. So let me push on a little bit. Yeah. What's the delta between causal mechanisms yeah. and discovery? Is it insight? Is it interpretability? What's the missing thing between those two? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Causal to me means that I have a directed edge, right? Ba- basically saying if I change this, then this is going to perturb this thing downstream, whether it's like a gene and a disease or whatever it is. I think discovery is not necessarily that. Discovery is basically taking 20,000 genes, whatever it is, and deciding that four of them are somehow involved in a process. Even that discovery is interesting. We don't know how they're related to each other. We don't know how they're related to the phenotype. We don't know perturbing what is going to lead to what. But just knowing that there are those four genes involved in this, and one of them may have particular cell surface marker that's easy to spot or be specific to a cell type or have, you know, some, some interesting, uh, you know, chemical aspect to it where we could drug it, for example. Those, I think, even just sorting through the the haystack right now is, is interesting, regardless of actually having the the directionality there. Understood. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Fascinating. Now, one of the things I also heard you talk a little bit about was epigenetics. Yeah. And I know that this is an area where you're spending a lot of time and a lot of thought lately. Maybe kind of tell us a little bit about what you've been working on there. Oh, it's so much. So I should say we're doing the final analysis for transEQTLs in, in GTEx V8, which is taking up sure. a lot of my time and emotional energy. But um, I think more exciting uh, for me right now than that is uh, thinking a lot about single-cell RNA sequencing and other, other questions having to do with single-cell analysis. So connecting you know, single-cell RNA sequencing with imaging data, which allows you to think about spatial resolution. So not just thinking about what goes on in a chunk of cells, but what goes on actually in a cell-resolved neighborhood is very, very interesting right now. So what goes on within a cell and how that affects its neighbors and how a cell changes state depending on the context that it's in. We can think about this then in the context of tumors or other types of tissue that are degrading, you know, any kind of disease tissue all of these are questions I'm really, really interested in. And it involves, again, changing the machine learning where we need to actually think about combining these spatially resolved images with 
sort of bulk or single cell data on slightly different samples still at this point and understanding how they relate to each other. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> awesome. You know, and then I see that another area you're spending a lot of time on is exploratory data analysis. And so this goes back to the kind of more theoretical <laughs> side of your work. Tell me more about what is going on in that field and areas that you're spending a lot of time on. Yeah, so again, uh, in, in the topic of exploratory data analysis, I feel like people are, uh, a lot of researchers are trying to think about how to apply these methods, these exploratory methods to single cell data to really understand what's there. Uh, again, discovery of new cell types or however we want to think about the collection of cells that we have, how patterns emerge in them from uh, differentiation of cells and, and cell state. A lot of exploratory questions we can ask there. In fact, uh, you know, again, to play devil's advocate, I think exploratory data analysis has to be the way that we go about all these biological applications because we don't have any ground truth at the end of the day, right? So there's no, we talk about prediction, but prediction is kind of meaningless if we don't have our ground truth data set, right? Our, our set of labeled cat images to, to work mm -hmm. with. So a lot of the methods that we think about have to work in the context of unlabeled data. Um, and so, you know, in that in that context, then, pretty much everything we do is, is exploratory data analysis. I should say that I think um, the community is really thinking now about how to do exploratory data analysis in the context of multimodal data, um, where you have many different sort of slices of it, whether it's putting together a lot of different epigenetic markers or that with genotype or imaging data or time series data and sort of uh, looking at different observations to put together. So, so if you were to give, deal. like, what's a, a toy problem that you would kind of point to for a naive audience to kind of think of as the essence of what EDA exploratory data analysis can you know accomplish. Well, I'm going to go back to discovery. I feel like what we can do with EDA is thinking about a topic that's uh, I'm really interested in right now is again putting image imaging data with high dimensional sequencing data, whether it's RNA sequencing or, or DNA sequencing, and and understanding how the two relate to each other. Again, they're going to be slightly different samples, but matched enough. And so what might be interesting in that context is thinking about the gene expression data, let's say, as labels for the image data. Now, you can say things not like, is there a cat in this image, but is this gene expressed some, in some set of cells in this image? And if so, which cells, yep. right? And then we can think about these labels across 20,000 different paired gene expression and images um, and start start doing these discovery questions, right? And then validating those with other data, like protein cell atlas, uh, where we actually do know uh, where particular proteins are expressed in image types and, and cell types. So putting together these different modalities, and again, finding patterns, validating those patterns, but also then thinking about taking those patterns out of context and, and starting to think about discovery with them, right? So what happens if we find in a particular tumor type that there's uh, some set of immune cells that yeah. uh, have infiltrated it in a particular way and have expression of a particular gene that we'd never noticed before. That's when it gets interesting, right? That's when we can think about specific tumors, specific images of tumor cells um, where we can actually go in and, and, and you know, start personalized treatments uh, based on what we see from these machine learning discoveries, right, from these patterns that come out of these data. You know, one of the things that's so exciting about talking to you is kind of the breadth of what you're doing, um, you know, going from very kind of basic questions of machine learning and cell biology, and then also talking about things like therapies and medicines. I'm sure that collaboration must be a big part of how you approach your career. Tell us a little bit about how you think about it, both things that you found to be really successful models, and even, you know, the focus of this show is really on bringing together the life sciences and data sciences. You know, how should the, the world as a whole be thinking about this question? 
So it, it's very interesting. I feel like when I collaborate with biologists in general, I enjoy collaboration immensely. I am very much a an extrovert and I love working with people and uh, really getting to know the technical problems that they're facing, you know, the biases in their data, how they do data collection, sort of everything I could possibly learn about what's going on. Uh, and similarly, I like to work with collaborators that really want to understand sort of the, the all the details of the models that we're building for those methods, the biases, the pitfalls, where they can actually sort of adapt their their technologies, their their data collection to work with this type of inference that we have available, for example. I like working with biologists from the start. So I don't like when people throw data over the fence at me and, you know, wait for a p-value. That's no fun. Uh, but working with people hand in hand is super great. And uh, how, do, how do I go about it? So, um, so you know, to be a little bit darker, I think, uh, there's in machine learning right now, one of the problems with the field as a whole, quite honestly, is that there's sort of this hubris of machine learning where we feel like we can not actually learn about physics to solve physical systems, for example. And I feel like it's the same way in, in biological applications where in a lot of cases we feel like, well, we have these models, we have some patterns that may occur. We don't really need to understand those problems to be able to fit our models and get an answer. And I think I think there's a bit of hubris there. I think there, hubris goes the other way as well, where you know, biologists often don't think that data analysis is a particularly challenging problem uh, because we sort of have all of these, you know, statistics for dummies books out there. Then you can pick it up and do a chi-squared test and, you know, all's good. But again, I, I think both admitting that we have uh, we have a long way to go and we're not experts in the other person's field is absolutely crucial to any sort of collaboration, I think. Um, and it's really fun to work with people who I can learn from and who feel like they can learn from what my group does. That's that's my favorite. <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things I think that is a recurring theme is just language. Biology and computer science yes. are two of the fields that have the largest lexicons and jargons that that's specialize true. to their own. You know, I remember going to med school and, oh, my God, I felt like I learned a whole new language, right? How do you bridge that divide when you sit with a biologist and have to come up to speed on this new language? And then obviously in reverse, you know, they need to learn a whole new language as well. Really good question. So I feel like actually in the field that I'm working with, unfortunately, there's actually sort of two languages already in that I sort of work in statistics and machine learning. So I feel like I learned the machine learning uh, language first, and then I sort of spent three years in Matthew Stevens' group, and then at Duke, where the statistic language was all that I heard. And even there's sort of a divide between Bayesian and frequentist statistical language as well. So I feel like there's there's a lot of language going around. You're you're right. It's incredibly difficult to to bridge that gap. I think I I just ask really naive questions a lot, uh, and and try to. I mean, I, I don't know if this is reflected in my, the papers that, if you've seen my papers, but the papers that I write, but I feel like every, my postdoc advisor was very good about making sure, and, and my PhD advisor too, um, making sure that sort of every every word that you say, every sentence is an opportunity to explain a concept, right, in, in a simple way. So don't, uh, you know, it's not about shock and awe and scaring people into thinking that they're not going to be able to understand this. It's about explaining these concepts. And I feel like that's when I sit down with a collaborator, that's what we need to do, right? We need to say, you know, then we do PCA. Do you understand why we do PCA? Do you understand why we filter the genome this way? Do you understand, you know, how we use then the PCA uh, sure. to, to, to do the correction or whatever we're talking about? And and, and talk about the pitfalls and talk about the places where it fails. And I feel like just, again, making tutorializing yeah. all of these questions um, makes the language sort of go away as long as you make sure you're still sort of on the same page with someone, right? Understood. Yeah. 
And I, I hope they do that with me, too, by the way. I love it when people get to a board and sort of explain basic biological processes on the board. That that absolutely works for me. <laughs> you know, and, and another question for you, and this goes back to the two languages of statistics and machine learning. You know, statistics has very solid mathematical underpinnings, you know, lots of theorems and proofs. And, you know, at least from where I sit, a lot of machine learning is still a bit more empirical and mm -hmm. things seem to work, but don't necessarily always have the same kind of theory why. Mm -hmm. I remember there's a quote from um, one of Vopnik's books that he said, you know, to the theoretician, the success of neural networks is troublesome. So thoughts on, for some of these kind of new machine learning methods, when the statisticians will actually kind of put them on more rigorous footing? Mm -hmm. That's also a hard question. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm asking you. We, we told you we, you weren't going to come on the show and get softballs, but, you know, at least I'm not uh, making fun of your children or something. <laughs> so, all right. So with that, you know, tell me, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Good. Yeah. So it's a really challenging problem to make um, a lot of the methods we're using uh, theoretically rigorous. Um, so there is this huge gap, like you said, between the, the theoretical foundations for a lot of the new machine learning methods we're talking about and actually how they're applied in practice as well. So what do we need theoretically? So again, from the standpoint of working with biological data, I want to make sure that my model fits are appropriate. I want to make sure that I'm not missing something big, um, that all the biases are accounted for, that I'm dealing with sort of minimizing the variance of my estimates, that my FDR, my p-values are well calibrated, my FDRs are well calibrated. I guess I have a series of things in my head that, that involves um, uh, statistical rigor, but because the, the, the theory does not exist for a lot of these things, I feel like we've developed workarounds in some sense. So I know, um, you know, my group is working on permutation analysis to be able to do calibration. We think a lot about model misspecification. You know, this is work I did with Dave Bly a couple of years ago and David Mimno, really how to test out whether we're, we're missing big things in, in, the, in how we've sort of oversimplified the data generation process. So it's absolutely true that, that we need really rigorous theoretical foundations, but I'm saying right now, because we don't have that and because I'm more interested in actually getting these things to work on real data, I think the workaround is sort of very practical solutions for proving robustness. Um, and we've done a lot of that. So, you know, as you were kind of growing up in machine learning, who were a couple of your intellectual heroes? You know, the people who you looked at their career and you said, you know, I really aspire to do something like that. If I'm being honest, I didn't have any heroes growing up in this world. So there are a few people that I absolutely admired a lot, if I was sort of going to the uh, sure. question about gender as well. So, you know, I worked with Daphne Kohler a little bit when I was at, at Stanford, and she was absolutely a hero of mine. But that said, I'm not Daphne Kohler. She is phenomenal, was phenomenal from the start. And I I, I grew better with age. <laughs> so like I, was a, I was a slow starter. <laughs> and, you know, you know, I feel like, uh, again, I, I, I will never be her. She's just, again, a force of nature. I'm, I'm going to play to my strengths. And uh, it's true that I, I don't really feel like I got a quick start in this field. I sort of had to work really hard. And, you know, I had a, I had a, a, a young woman come to me the other day and say, well, I'm not as talented as a lot of my peers. And I say, you know what? Actually, talent has nothing to do with it. You just have to work really hard. <laughs> and um, I feel like that's sort of been my my mantra and I'm going to keep going with it. But yeah, in terms of having heroes, I, I feel like a lot of it, what we're doing now is so niche that it's really hard to have heroes, especially in the sense that, you know, we all we, life throws us all curveballs. And sure. um, I have probably more children than the average academic. So uh, how many kids do you have? I have four kids. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I had them through all the different stages of life. So one as a grad student, one in industry, one as a postdoc, and one as a, a junior faculty. And, you know, not very many of my heroes have those same uh, family obligations as I do right now. And, and you know, again, I just, I, we adapt. We adapt yeah. and we work hard and we do what we need to do to be as successful as we want to be. And I, I just really want to solve problems in, in biomedical analysis. And here I am to do that. You know, especially with uh, talking about your children, you know, maybe even more important to all of us than intellectual heroes mm -hmm. are character heroes. Yes. You know, the people that you look at and say, this is a truly decent person yes. and I, I should behave that way too. Are there any people on that list for you? Uh, you know, I have to say my, I, I've been extremely lucky to have mentors that I can say that about. So Mike Jordan is absolutely the, the best advisor anyone could ever hope for. He really invests in each of his students in, in such a deep way. And uh, I am eternally grateful to him. And he is one of those absolutely, absolutely. Similarly, Matthew Stevens, although in a very different way, is also, you know, entirely committed to to his students and to the the process of, of thinking through these problems. And, and again, I think he's another phenomenal person. Um, I really uh, have learned so much from all of my mentors, and I feel incredibly lucky to have landed in their labs. You know, there's also mentors that weren't people that I directly worked with, but that I feel this way about. And, and a lot of them are actually more my peers now than my mentors. You know, people that I sort of grew up in this space with. I think, again, Dave Bly is just such a phenomenal person. Yeah, there are some great people out there. I, I as as I grow older in this field, my my only advice to younger people is to with every person you meet, play the long game. Assume that, you know, you're going to be at each other's weddings and, you know, collaborating with each other and seeing each other four times a year at meetings because that's the way my life has turned out and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> to return to mathematics, I think that's called tit for tat <laughs> in prisoner, Prisoner's yes, Dilemma. Yes, Prisoner's Dilemma. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Anthony. Barbara Englehart from Princeton University. Yeah, so cool you got to have that conversation. Totally. So let's hammer and nail it up, my friend. <laughs> okay. As you, you and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone brings an idea or a solution, i.e. a hammer and nail. So do you have a cool hammer or nail you want to talk about today? I do. This is a hammer. Surprise. What I'd like to talk about is this kind of image net moment that we're having in NLP. So I want to break down those two concepts first, yeah, then we can like kind of talk about Explain to the clinician. Exactly. <laughs> ImageNet, what is this ImageNet? ImageNet, it's just a big spider's web filled with <laughs> images. That's what it is. No, ImageNet is a data set that was constructed by Fei-Fei Li and collaborators uh, when she was at Stanford. And it has been one of the prime drivers of innovation in at least vision-based machine learning. And what it is, is it's a collection of many millions of images. And in those millions of images, people, um, like human beings, have sat down and labeled what, what objects are in those images. And so this can be things like leopard and boat and cargo ship. And there's an incredible number of these classes, an incredible number of these images. It was such a large data set. So how big is it? So ImageNet is it's over 10 million images, about 14 million images. And what's really interesting is that there are over a thousand different object types. You can't just get good at identifying cat and dog, but you have to, there's actually like 
dozens of subbreeds of dogs. Right? So things <laughs> right. that I myself could not do and be like puppy, right. dog, but like it's, it's super specific. And this data set was hard enough and big enough to really galvanize a lot of development in image-based machine learning. The effect of that and kind of what I mean by the ImageNet moment is when you train a model on ImageNet, people observed that there was something kind of captured about our visual world in these models that was good enough to then be kind of fine-tuned and tweaked on other tasks that seemed to be unrelated. Got it. So you could train a model on ImageNet, get whatever accuracy you got. It, you know, it was kind of in the, the realm of state-of-the-art. You could use models that other people had trained, like Google or Facebook or Microsoft. And then you could apply it to something totally out of left field, like diagnosing x-rays. Oh, wow. Or applying... So not just finding cats in a new data set, but actually using the weights on medical images or something Exactly. Wow. And, and okay. you wouldn't use it totally un, unchanged. You, you would tweak it. And you'd often not tweak the whole network. You'd tweak just like the last little bit. So you take off the part at the top that says, okay, oh. is it a cat or is it a dog or a cargo ship? And you'd replace it with... Uh, what's the severity of the yeah. this particular medical image, right? And this has been applied to identifying, you know, birds and different types of plankton. I mean, there's like it's 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 totally spread across yep. the world, and it's it's commodity. It's sure. the, it's the kind of a thing where you can read a blog post and you can actually use this now, okay. which is incredibly important, right? It means that it's yep. kind of in everybody's hands and it's it's gotten out there. So, ImageNet moment is, is this inception. Uh, Inception is a model. You know, Inception was developed by your colleagues at Google AI, right? Yeah, that's right. That was one of the kind of top models uh, when it was released. Um, now there's ones that have kind of surpassed it. But, the, you know, the insight in building that original model was, let's make these neural networks as giant as possible. Yeah. Sounds like a very Google approach. It, yeah, it definitely was. And it turns out it was the right thing to do, right? So making these neural networks bigger and bigger and bigger, given the size of the data set, actually you know, paid real dividends. That's the ImageNet moment, this idea of a large data set, which galvanized a bunch of research, and the models can generalize to new tasks. They can be fine-tuned to smaller kind of other tasks. ImageNet and NLP, what does that mean? So NLP, natural language processing. So this is like, I've got a web page, and I want to classify... Is it about video games or is it about sports or whatever, right? So I want to take some text in and I want to make a decision on it. Sure. Um, NLP models are generally trained per task and they, in the past, haven't been able to generalize to other adjacent tasks. So this notion of like training on one big data set and then expecting it to work on other kind of smaller data sets just hasn't been a thing. And in like, so if I train it on Shakespeare and then try and apply it on Tolstoy, it doesn't work. We'll fail, okay. right? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why one would want to do this. Namely, you want to make a huge investment in kind of one good model mm -hmm. and then be able to apply it in a commodity fashion to a bunch of other tasks. It's really desirable, right? Yeah. But things have been getting a lot better recently. So uh, is this is this word to vec? So word to vec is part of the history, but it is ancient history right now. That's a 2013 <sighs> paper, right? Oh, Which is basically I am like so uh, <laughs> from from I am a, not cool from All another right. generation. No, word, so word to vec is still used in lots of different places, and it does have this property that if you kind of use word to vec to featureize your sentences, you can turn like raw text into something that you could do machine learning on, and it does sure. work pretty good. There's been follow ups like Glove, and you know they're still used in production in a bunch of different places. What's changed really rapidly over the past you know, year about is there have been models that have been trained on absolutely astoundingly huge amounts of data using absolutely astoundingly huge amounts of compute that have this property of working on a bunch of different tasks 
with fine tuning and tweaking. And so, you know, some of this has come out of uh, Google. So the BERT model, uh, B-E-R-T, is kind of the the current emblematic ImageNet-esque model in text. But there's others from OpenAI. I uh, think that's uh, GPT. Um, and there's you know there's there's several that are kind of in the same generation that all have this property. It's this incredible moment where people really can't expect to download this model and you know fine tune it on Shakespeare, right? And is it just that it was bigger? So for example, going back to the ImageNet analogy, I could imagine if you built a data set that was mostly cats, then it wouldn't generalize. Right. But if you got it big enough and diverse enough, so is it right. really about the data or is it something different? So that's a hard thing for me to tease apart. And you know this is not my primary area of expertise, but from what I've been able to kind of glean about this by reading about it and talking with the people that have been developing these things, it really is a bigger is better situation. Okay. Right. So the as far as I can tell, there's not any new earth shattering ideas inside these models. Sure. The data is the size of the internet, which is always a good thing. Yep. And the models contain lots of really cool new innovations, but there's no real new math. Right. Um, but there's a lot of new tricks and a lot of new kind of specialized knowledge that, you know, that makes these things work better and better and better until you kind of see this phase change, which is, oh, it actually starts to work you know, when I tweak it on other tasks. So, so what would be an example of something that works now that didn't work you know, a year or two ago? So to be able to expect these types of models, the architecture of the models, to be something you could apply in biology. So like amino acid sequences oh. Oh, wow. and nucleotide sequences are sequences, right? Yep. And the architectures are such that you can uh, apply them to biological tasks and actually expect them to work. So what would be something with, let's say, a protein sequence that would work that you could do? Right. So let's say you wanted to digest a protein sequence and say, okay, how bright is this thing going to glow, right? If I oh. make this protein and yeah. you know I actually put it into a bacteria and produce it, can I predict how bright this, you know, say green fluorescent protein right. might be, right? We're okay. at the point where this is kind of working. Um, wow. Yeah. Right. I, and for that specifically, I'm not sure if we're doing transfer learning or tweaking in the sense that we're like not retraining the model from scratch, but we, we are using this architecture, BERT, to do these kinds of things, right? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think that the number of places where there are sequences where we have thought mm, maybe we maybe we can't do machine learning here. Like there, there's a lot of places in, in biology and in other kind of domains where there's sequences waiting to be kind of machine learned. Right. And, you know, amino acids and, and DNA, like th this is this is one kind of area of, of research and of the world where it's like pretty stark and obvious, but I'm sure there's going to be other, you know, really creative places where people start to look at these things. Well, and even going back to kind of NLP, what does it mean for some of the kind of holy grail problems like translation? You know, and, and being able to kind of have, um, you know, the Star Trek vision of, you know, I have a thing in my ear and it, somebody's speaking to me and I can understand it in, uh, in English. I was in Japan uh, a couple months ago and I rented one of those things. They exist, right? I mean, you, where people speak into it and then it speaks back to you in another language, right? Like people are making these products now. I think Alan Kay has the phrase, the future is unevenly distributed, Oh, wait, I think it's the future is here. It's the future uneven, is here. Yeah, it's, it's just unevenly distributed, right. right? So, like, this is this is happening right now. And again, the, and at it's least because of these advances, I mean, it's Bursa or, or its cousins are the ones that made this possible. Absolutely, and I don't know that for sure. And these other products that people are launching, but like, that's the new thing on the tech side. And I would be really surprised if that didn't have some bearing on the actual like you know products that people are producing. And what about other questions like comprehension in terms of you know being able to input a chapter of a book and output a summary of what happened in the chapter. Yeah, I mean, 
that's called text summarization. People have been working on that for, for some time, and this is now squarely in the domain of machine learning and deep learning. Um, yeah. Historically, deep learning didn't have much to say, um, or neural networks didn't have much to say about this kind of area of research. But, and again, I'm not an expert, but you know, deep learning has kind of ha- had an incredible impact in this area, and that's the tool that I believe most people reach for when they try to do these cool. things. And there, you know, uh, I'm not sure kind of what the what the end ideal state is, but we do have a lot of summarizations, right? We've got a lot of, you know, book blurbs. We've got a lot of examples of these things we can learn from. And so people are definitely taking a crack at this. That's awesome. I, I'm really glad we got to talk about that. Thanks for taking the time to chat. And thank you even more for bringing us that interview. It was really awesome. Oh, it was a real pleasure to talk to Barbara. I think that wraps it up for this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wilchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.